This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Welcome back, Tiger fans, to Rocky Nation's football podcast. I'm Nate Edwards. That's Brandon B.K. Kiley. This is Before the Box Score, National Signing Day edition. Wrapped up the second National Signing Day. Basically nothing happened. Very uneventful, which, hey, if you have to have bad eventful, good eventful, or uneventful, uneventful is not so bad. B.K., how you doing, man? Well, I'm doing about as well as Eli Drinkwitz after he officially brought in one of the, I believe, the best recruiting class, if I'm not mistaken, in the history of Mizzou football, according to Rivals. So far, yeah, 21. And I would imagine it won't change too much, um, given the fact that today was the final National Signing Day. So, doing pretty well, man. Doing pretty well. I mean, there's always like a few stragglers here or there, um, but because transfers don't count... You know, that, that's, there's a very good chance that they finish at twenty first. So regardless, I mean, it's it's a very very good class, one of the best we've ever seen at Missouri. Which, awesome, <laughs> it's a good time to have a your best recruiting class ever. Uh, but like I said, there's nothing that really happened. They signed almost all of their guys uh, in December, which is it's good to have an early signing period because the guys who wanted to sign they they signed them. That's awesome, but. Of course, what coaches did is they turned that into, well, well, if you don't commit here, then, I, then I'm not sure I got a spot for you. And, and so now everybody commits in December, and then you get the the five-star blue-chip divas that get to the draw it out because they know they have a guaranteed roster spot anywhere. Uh, draw it out to now. So maybe a three-star or two-star sign somewhere here or there. There's a couple five-star stragglers who haven't gone anywhere just yet, but Missouri ends up t- at 21st. They do get B.J. Harris to officially sign today. He is officially a Tiger as of now. And, of course, uh, the, the social medias were flooded with messages from the families of the recruits, which I thought was an excellent touch. It was very cool to see the families wish their kids well as they uh, officially, officially became Tigers and started their career with Missouri football. Yeah, it was. I think Mizzou has done a really good job social-wise in general, really since Eli Drinkwitz was hired. I think he's revamped kind of what mm-hmm. they're doing from that perspective. Um, I think a decent amount of this is under the recruiting um, department. And I was actually listening, by the way, speaking of the recruiting department, I was listening to a Power Mizzou podcast the other day with uh, Gabe DeArmond. They had, um, what's his face, uh, tight ends coach. Why am I drawing a blank here now? Casey, Casey Woods. Woods, your guy. He was on there, and man, I would highly recommend Mizzou fans check this thing out because Casey Woods went into detail on how Mizzou goes about offering kids uh, like what the process is that goes into how a kid gets an offer, who who uh, goes into the evaluation of it, what it, how it goes up the chain. Um, he went into the different departments and how there's basically four pillars that Mizzou is using right now. It's really interesting because we think of it as like the, the back end, right? We see the results of kid commits, we get excited, and we, we celebrate the fact that he's going to play at Mizzou. But the process of it all is absolutely fascinating. Um, and he, the reason I brought that up, he did dive into what you were just mentioning about, Hey, you know, we've got two signing periods, but really it's just become, you have a signing period, which is December. And if you don't sign, then, then the coaches are looking around wondering why you aren't actually committed. And so they find somebody else that they can get instead of you. So it's, it's really fascinating to see how these programs are kind of 
evolving with the rules that they are given. And especially right now with the fact that all of these players get the extra year of eligibility, it could potentially put some roster crunches down the road. That's a big, important point that you brought up there. I saw a lot of recruiting uh, reporters, recruit Knicks talking about this long term. You with COVID, you have two kind of phenomena happening at the same time. Number one, graduating seniors can return for the from the next year, which they are. And number two, almost all of these kids that you just signed, you have not seen in person. Maybe you had a few during a junior or a sophomore day or a camp in the summer. Or maybe you, you visited their high school a couple of years ago and you saw them you know, when they were younger. But overall, this class has not been on campus. This class has not been viewed with their own eyes, with this coaching staff. And so let's call it what it is. Like Obviously, recruiting is kind of a crapshoot anyway. But there's a lot more variance this year just because they haven't been able to get their hands on them, get you know, get them on campus, talk to them, and see what's going on. And one of the things that I saw, I know Bud Elliott has talked about it a lot at 247. There's a couple others that have talked about it too, is that a lot of coaching staffs right now are not taking waivers on high school kids. What they're doing is they would rather plumb the transfer portal and say, look, I can't see this kid in person. I haven't seen him in his senior year. Why would I take a four-year gamble on someone that I don't know when I could take a two-year or three-year gamble on a guy I know that can already perform at this level? And so a lot of these coaches are leaving three, four, five scholarship spots open and are going to fill them with transfers. And I don't know if that's the right answer, but – I think it makes a lot of sense, and I know there's a lot of NAIA and FCS and D3 teams that are like, we are getting kids who have FBS offers and like 3.7 GPAs who didn't get offered a spot. Um, so it's a really interesting period for, for high school kids, and I feel bad for a lot of them, but it's just very unique circumstances. Well, the other thing is it's going to become potentially a self-fulfilling prophecy too, right? Like the, that – transfer portal very well could become even more active not just this year but in years to come because as you said a lot of these kids potentially have never been to the campus that they are about to enroll at like think about that for a second they may have never been to the campus where they are about to spend potentially the next four years of their life they might have never seen the coach that they just committed to in person and so that's going to create for some interesting dynamics where a kid gets on campus, he's not what the coach expected. The kid gets on campus and the coach is not what the kid expected him to be. I'm fascinated to see what this means for 2022 and 2023 when some of these players don't end up working out or the coaches are not what the player thought that they were buying into. I, I think we're going to see a lot of activity over the next few years in the transfer portal. It was already happening. It was something that was trending in this direction anyways, but much like a number of things with the pandemic not related to sports, the pandemic basically just accelerated the, the, the trajectory that we were already on. Remember if you rewind the clocks to April or May, and we were talking about like week after week, we're at a record number of high school kids committed to programs, including our own. And we're going, oh my God, everyone's just committing so fast because they don't know if there's going to be a spot available. They don't, they don't, they can't travel. They can't go see anything. Coaches can't see them in person. They're just going to commit to whatever offer that they get. And that was going to come with a huge decommit season towards, you know, November, December when we thought things might lighten up. And they did to a certain extent. And there was a little bit of a, of a larger decommit season, but I think you nailed it. It's going to be a transfer portal season. It's, it's going to be a booming. And I think a, a lot of these, these programs are leaving those scholarships open uh, so that they can, they can get some kids that way. And, and I mean, Drinkwitz did the same thing. I talked about it in my roster analysis piece on Tuesday. We're at 81. And I was counting 81 with B.J. Harris. Well, he signed, and no one else did. So we can carry 85 scholarships, unless Drink decides to hand a few out to the walk-ons. That's four scholarships he can hand out between now and, uh, I think, August, right? That's yeah. when your rosters are finalized. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, he, we could add a couple transfers. We could add four if we wanted to. Or, hell, he might just hold on to those, put them in his pocket, and you know, say, hey, I'm I'm used to playing at a at a smaller roster, even through last year. I can do it again, and then we can really hit the transfer portal hard 
uh, when I know that I'm going to lose some decommits because they're not going to be what I thought, and I know exactly what I can get in the next year's crop of transfer portal. So who knows what he's actually thinking? This is just some guy in his basement talking out loud and thinking about what he could do. Well, let's do this. Let's do this for a sec, all right? Uh, this is a hard, uh, hard right turn from where we were expecting to go, but this yeah. is how the show goes sometimes. Um, if you were mm-hmm. Eli Drinkwitz and you have, let's let's say I give you two scholarships to work with. You've got two extra scholarships that you can have, and you're taking in a transfer. I don't know what the transfer portal looks like right now. Let's let's assume that you get an average Division One like replacement level mm-hmm. type of player. What positions I, would I'm you doing be this targeting for the 2021 season? The, yeah, let's say they're both juniors. They have two years of two eligibility. Two years of eligibility remain. starting in 21, and 21 would be their first year used. Um, mm-hmm. I would go receiver. Receiver you first. you got two spots. Uh, I would get a tall receiver of some sort. Uh, <laughs> yeah, someone who plays the X. Um, and then I would get another defensive end. Um a pass rusher, not not a run stuffer, not not a strong side uh, defensive end, a weak side pass rushing defensive end. That's what I would go with. What about you? I think I would. So I love the defensive end one. That's that's. I mean, let's be honest. That's probably the correct answer. But if I'm going to be a little different here, one spot that I think might be a little more interesting than a lot of people would expect. I'm really curious what that they're going to do my safety yep. next year. Yep. I'm really curious what that's going to look like because we all love Martez Manuel. Um, Jelani Williams had some moments Sean last Robinson. year. Sean <laughs> Robinson. They really have. They, they really have nobody no. else that's proven back there. Like you said, Sean Robinson legitimately is probably yeah. going to play for them. Stacy Brown had a little playing time last year, but not a lot. Um, I. I'll be very interested to see what they do on the back end because last year we saw them play a ton of three mm-hmm. safety looks. If you go back into what we've seen in the past from Steve Wilkes, it's been more three, traditional three corner, two safety nickel looks where mm-hmm. he goes four, two, five. Um, I would think with the personnel that they have, that makes a little more sense for them going into next year than what they did last year with the it's three just, safeties. It's just too much field. unproven stuff. I completely agree. Josh Bledsoe had 643 defensive snaps. Martez Manuel had 587. Tyree Gillespie missed two games, had 539. The de- the defensive back, the safety that had the most snaps after that was our dear old Mason Pack at 44. Really? Above Jelani Williams. I thought Jelani played a little more than that. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Jelani Williams. 127. Okay. There we go. Okay. I was about to say, that that makes more sense. Yeah. But even then, that's not a ton. It got 44 over the 127. Okay, so Jelani Williams, yeah, 127. And then the Mason Pack at 44. So you don't have anybody else with a ton of experience. Sean Robinson got, what, 27 snaps? Something like that at safety. Uh, Stacey Brown had 10. (laughs) <laughs> like there's a gap there now I, like you said i know that there's a lot of three safety looks that's pretty much the the base defense du jour of, of modern college football but yeah, currently we don't really have those guys unless you take uh someone like an aiden harrison who is a lighter linebacker uh maybe play him at the strong side or maybe take uh and blaze aldridge by the way is a lighter linebacker. is he fast enough well. to play safety though so he no no but i i what I'm saying is I don't think they're going to do that next year. Um, I think you you play – like, if you're in that nickel, I think what they'll do is they'll just go with – like, there, there's the big nickel and then there's tra- traditional nickel, right? And I think they'll go more the traditional nickel nickel where they have coverage linebackers on the field, and I think Blaze Aldridge okay. will be one of well. those guys. And I think you'll put, like, Jarvis Ware, um, Ennis Rakestraw, and then pick your slot yeah. corner of the day, you know? I think that I think that's probably the way that they'll set this up. I think you could even play Enos Rakestra in the slot with like burning Man, like outside. We only saw him for one season, but it just kind of feels like Enos is, is more suited for nickel, at least at this level right now. I'm not totally sure if he's ready for mm-hmm. you know spotting up the, the second best receiver on a on an opponent's team, but that's not his fault. He's just young. I think he'd be great in the in the nickel and Jarvis Ware is what he's gonna be. Just kind of a well, he's a honey badger. So I don't know, but there is a gap in safety. So I would absolutely take yeah. Uh, yeah, some guy with some experience with that. 
Other than safety, would you take anybody else? Um, I, wide receiver would be the other. But I, I yeah. think that's that's kind of the obvious one. If I was trying to be a little bit different, I don't know that there's another great spot for it. I think they're pretty good on the offensive line. Really. I think they're pretty good on the interior with the defensive line. I don't think – you know what? If I get two years out of him, maybe D line, uh, D interior defensive line. That That might be a spot. Because oh. right now, I don't think okay. he would have a yeah. whole lot of impact in 2021, but I think by 2022, he'd be a starter for me. I would have also taken an offensive lineman. I know we got a lot of guys, but they're just not experienced. You got Indoma Ogar coming in. You have a starting five, but it's just the the rotational pieces, the guys that come in in case of injury. I, we don't have a lot of that kind of proven depth. So I would have taken another offensive lineman too. But we'll see. I, Drinkwitz is a smart guy. He knows what he's doing. I'm going to trust him to, to manage the scholarships correctly. So, um, Oh, and God, yeah, since we've been off for two weeks, I forgot to mention, um, we did add a, a, cor- a cornerback, a Juco cornerback, the best one out there, apparently, Jadarius Perkins. Um, <laughs> I forgot about that, actually. I know. <laughs> it's been a weird couple of weeks, man, but he's uh, out of Hattiesburg, Mississippi, went to uh, Gulf Coast Community College for the past couple of years. Uh, top-rated corner in junior college ranks, 6'2", 190, 5.73 Have star. you watched his film? No, tell me about it. He's interesting. Um, I really have no idea what to make of him. None. He makes some plays. He is a guy that is going to take a lot of chances. Um, he, from what I saw, and a reminder, this is just based on his huddle film, which is basically his highlights that he thinks should be out there. So keep that in mind. From what I saw, he jabs like crazy at the line of scrimmage like he is he has a serious punch and he likes to use it and he's 6'2 so it's not a surprise like his length is ridiculous and when he squares up against a receiver it's super effective and it throws him off their routes and he ends up basically winning the rep because of that when he doesn't get him square though he loses leverage sometimes and the receiver can get right behind him And it didn't happen a lot at Juco because Juco and some of those receivers that he's going up against aren't the best, right? In the SEC, he's going to have to be way, 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 way more fundamentally sound. It kind of reminded me of watching um, one of the other guys that they had committed this year, Zaquan Reeves, who has every skill you could possibly want. Like he, in terms of the tangible, like if you're going to the NFL combine, Zaquan Reeves is going to blow it out of the water he's gonna look like that guy is a superstar mm-hmm. can he actually play football though i don't know mm-hmm. i legitimately don't know the answer to that to that question mm-hmm. but it's the job of your coaching staff to be able to get the most out of him i saw a lot of the same things but obviously to a higher degree because he's a juco player who has more he has a lot more experience at the position from Jadarius perkins so i'm fascinated to see what he can do uh at the next level you, you get these guys to start. You don't get these guys to put them on the bench. So you have to assume that Drinkwitz liked him enough, Gibbs liked him enough to say, look, you've got the raw skills. We can coach you up over the spring and summer, get you where we want you to be. The thing with JUCOs is that, you know, sometimes it doesn't pan out. Sometimes they, they are who they are and they don't really improve. And then you've sunk a scholarship for two years. But I'm going to choose to believe that this is someone that, that they know what to do with. And even if it doesn't work, there's plenty of other guys that can step up. They're just unproven. But it, I don't know. I'm just kind of sitting here thinking it's going to be Jarvis Ware and Jadarius Perkins on the outside. Maybe an Enos Rakestraw that, that, that rotates in. But that's – if you need three corners, uh, I am I am good with that three without even seeing what, what Perkins can do. What do you think? Um, I Good good is a strong term. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, I think that I I actually thought based on what I saw on film and it's a hundred percent different different level of play. Dalen Carnell to me looked more prepared to play at the next level right now than Jadarius Perkins. Dang. Um, and and that's I, I'm not I I hope that people understand. This is not me taking a shot at Perkins. This is not me saying he can't play at the next level. I think he could be a star. Like he he has star potential. Same thing that I said about Zaquan Reeves. If he gets his fundamentals down, that kid can be special. 
but he's got to get there. And the same thing is true, at least to me, with Perkins from what I saw. So I think both of those guys are a little bit more on the project side of things. And I think Carnell's a little bit more ready today to go out there and immediately play. But that's just what I saw from the very limited film that we have available mm-hmm. to us. And I, I'm going to be really interested to see what that looks like once they officially take the field. Yeah. I'm always hesitant to, to trust any freshman defender. I, I'm just – I'm with you. I don't. But I, I want to take your word for it. If you, if you think he's feeling good, it uh, looks good that he can succeed, then – God. Rake Straw, uh, Carnell, starting cornerback duo. Hell yeah. Let's get on board. Let's do it. It'd be a lot of fun, that's for sure. Yeah, especially for a long term. So that's good. So, yeah, we brought in Jadarius Perkins. That's that's good. Uh, we also lost Shamar Pearl for, for you know the second straight time. Uh, if you remember, uh, Mr. Pearl was committed to Missouri, God, what was that, 2018, 2019, mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, he was not uh, – 2019. He was academically not eligible. So he hit the JUCO route as well, and uh, then he committed to us. And then it sounds like Missouri moved on from wanting his services. So he is no longer an option. He's not going to sign. He's going to be looking elsewhere. And then in addition, we had another transfer portal jumpy, uh, Thalen Robinson, who opted out for the 2020 season, just decided to call it quits and go somewhere else. He is also in the transfer portal. Uh, So that is a guy who didn't really ever see the field, but you're using a depth piece and the offensive line. Any big thoughts on those two departures? Honestly, no. Yeah. Um, I guess the one overall thought that I would have here, and it's more of a big picture takeaway than an individual. Did any of the guys who opted out end up coming back? So Chris you can remember? Sheeran is supposed to come back. Okay. He's the only uh he's the only one who did opt out officially and we think is coming back. Everybody else hit the road. Okay. I, I find that really interesting. Yeah. Um, I It, it kind of – I think it's pretty telling that before the season they knew this was wh- – whether it be their part – could be either side, right? Whether it be them or the coaching staff knew those guys were not going to be a part of the long-term future of the program. Yeah. And the fact that they knew it that quickly is uh, – I, I find that to be pretty interesting. And that's not uh, that's not a Missouri phenomenon. That is true, like, no. across the board. Like, opt-outs all over the nation, most of them ended up hitting the transfer portal. So don't think that that's a Missouri or a Drinkwitz problem. That's that's true for everybody. Yeah, no, I, and that's not a shot at either side. I, I get it. If you're a player and you think that this is just not the spot for you, totally understand. If you just didn't want to play for COVID, I, I got no qualms with yeah. you. Um, if you are a coaching staff and you think that this is not the right fit and you tell them and then they decide to move on, Hey, nothing you can really do about that, you know? (laughs) So, um, I, I'm not faulting anybody. It's the, it's the way of the world right Mm -hmm. now, but it is, it is an interesting phenomenon that we didn't previously experience. They would typically just kind of float through the season. And then at the end of the year, you get the announcement and you move forward. But this time it was a little different in that it was almost kind of, previewed before the season and then you found out the official news once the season came to an end yeah so you got you kind of got a season of used to not having those kids around and then they then they made it official so yeah so none of them were surprises whereas no. previously you'd get those transfer notices and you'd be like whoa yeah, wait what exactly and this this was not surprising yeah. so that's well, okay that's okay um thanks for showing up you know sorry it didn't work out best of luck going forward that's all um, so we've, we've we actually mentioned the name and we have not talked about it yet because scheduling is hard, but, uh, Missouri has a new defensive coordinator and they have a new defensive line coach. I think it was a couple of days. It was literally the day after we recorded, probably less than 12 hours after we recorded. We predicted that they would hire Steve Wilkes. If I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, I think on the episode that we last recorded, which was two weeks ago, we both said we thought it was heading in the direction of Steve Wilkes. I went back and listened, and yes, we said there's so much buzz and energy around Steve Wilkes, we both thought that was going to be the hire. Mm-hmm. We also said after we hit stopped hitting record, it would come out basically also right on that one. So Steve Wilkes, NFL guy, college guy from a long time ago. He is our new defensive coordinator. Uh, 
I was impressed with the press conference, which doesn't say a lot. You should be winning those press conferences every single time that you get hired. You should have a speech ready to go. You should always sound prepared and good and say the right things, blah, blah, blah. Yes, but I still liked it. I liked kind of hearing a little bit about the character of who he was and his story. Uh, He jumped on and and created a Twitter because he knows that recruiting is important and he needs to connect with the kids. So I will give him credit to that. Uh, I I like it. My, my, I, I was talking to Allie Trost over at the Kansas City radio scene, and, and she was asking my opinion of it. And I said, look, I'm going to like it for now. My questions are always going to be the same for any kind of NFL hire. Number one, how good of a teacher are you? Because in the NFL, you have 11 billion hours to break down film, figure out exactly what you want to do, and get you guys to do it exactly the way you want to. In college, you got 10 hours a week. So how good is he of a teacher? How good is he at diagnosing offenses and, 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 and changing on the fly? I'm not talking about halftime changes because that, that's bunk. That's not an actual thing. I'm talking on the fly, drive to drive, personnel or schematic changes. How good is he at that? And then how good is he at recruiting? Those are my three questions. And I don't have answers for those right now. I'm not expecting them. It's just all I want to know. And we will see that as we go through the offseason. We will see that as we get into the season. But so far, he has done no wrong, so I like him. What do you think, BK? I'm a fan. Um, I will tell you one thing. So I wrote this a little bit last week. So if you read the piece, I apologize for being repetitive here. But to, to it's a different format, so maybe a little bit of a different audience. I do think that there is one thing that I found particularly interesting about this hire. And it is when you compare it to the hire that Barry Odom made when he last needed a coordinator on the side of the ball that he wasn't in charge of. So these, these hires are really important. Barry Odom was a defensive coach who was a head coach. So when he hired his offensive coordinator, that was going to be a guy that was essentially the head coach of the offense, right? When Eli Drinkwitz hires a defensive coordinator, he is more or less hiring the head coach of the defense, So it's really important that you get those hires right. And it's why I think he actually made a really smart decision last year to retain Ryan Walters. It's why it was so important that when Barry Odom initially got the job, he took Josh Heupel. Those were good hires. Then Barry Odom was put put into a situation where the program didn't have a whole lot of stability. There was questions as to whether or not Odom would for sure be here for the long term. And he ended up having to settle for what seemed to be like his seventh choice for the offense coordinator gig and a guy that had literally never called a play in his life. That was Derek Dooley. It ended up being, in a lot of ways, the downfall of Barry Odom here at Mizzou. This is the opposite. Steve Wilkes was sought after. Last year, Steve Wilkes had opportunities in the NFL to continue to come back and be, whether it be a defense coordinator or a position coach in the NFL. He had opportunities. He also had opportunities this offseason to be a defensive coordinator elsewhere if he wanted to be. He was looking for a spot where he could find a good fit to set down long-term because he had a disastrous season in Arizona. He had a disastrous season in Cleveland, got fired after both years in 2018 and 2019, and then decided to take last year off and wanted to find a good fit for him. He chose Mizzou. He chose Mizzou because there's stability here right now. He chose Mizzou because it's on an upward trajectory. And so that's what I find interesting about this hire is what it tells us about where Mizzou is right now. This is a very Alabama-y hire. It's a hire where a guy is looking for a little stability to get his career back on track, and then he's going to go find the next great job, right? I think that's what this is for Steve Wilkes. I think he would love to stay at Mizzou for the next three to five years. But if he gets a head coaching opportunity elsewhere, or if he gets a really fantastic NFL defense coordinator gig, I would think he'd probably at least listen. And that's a good thing. That means he did a really good job here at Mizzou. Um, And it means that Drinkwitz can sell that to whoever the next defense coordinator is. So I, I say all of that to basically say, I think this hire is more telling about the state of the program than it is anything specifically about Steve Wilkes right now. You know, I was I was upset when Barry Odom got fired. I thought it was an overreaction. I am very pleased with Eli Drinkwitz and and everything that he's done. I would make that change again in a heartbeat. However, one of the additional issues that I had with the Odom firing 
was when Drinkwitz was hired and I saw the salary pool available to his assistants. And more and more often, when you're talking about head coaching hires, when you're thinking like, oh, who's going to take the Texas job? Or, you know, are you going to become Notre Dame's defensive coordinator? Or are you going to become uh, Toledo's head coach? Like, you know, stuff like that. The assistant salary pool is so, so, so important, you guys, anymore. Like, you used to not think about it, but it is a big deal right now because you got to hire those big name coordinators, guys who can coach that side of the ball. And the thing that drove me nuts about the Odom era was that he had nothing to play with. <laughs> he took a discount as as a head coach. He was one of the lowest paid head coaches in the SEC. And the salary pool for his assistants was the smallest. The smallest. I mean, we don't know what Vanderbilt's was officially because it's a private school and doesn't have to report that sort of thing. But we knew that it was a little bit more generally than what Missouri did. And then Odom gets fired. They bring in Drinkwitz and they magically find the money to expand the assistant huh. pool. Like, we can go into why that is, and I don't want to, but that drove me crazy. Point being, Steve Wilkes is going to make $800,000 in his first year, and in his second year, he's going to be making a million as Missouri's defensive coordinator. Missouri will have a million-dollar coordinator. Mm -hmm. Drinkwitz is making $4 million a year, okay? Now, you know. But so, but he's also his own offensive coordinator. Also, he's doing a great job. Steve Wilkes, who has done nothing, if he does nothing this first year, he will make a million dollars next year, no matter what. Where was that again for Odom? Like, this is why he picked Dooley. Yes, it was, it was rats jumping from a sinking ship. I understand that. But he also had no money to play with. And maybe he had no money to play with because no one trusted him to get the job done. I understand that this could be a chicken or an egg kind of situation. But, oh, my God, what kind of coordinator could he have gotten for a million dollars a year? I don't know, but probably better than Derek freaking Dooley. <sighs> I, see, I don't know if that's true. Um, I actually think it's not true. Really? I, I think the problem was people didn't want to come to Missouri at that time because they looked at it and they saw, okay, so I get Drew Locke, which is great, for a year, and then I have nothing at the quarterback position. Nothing. And on top of that, because at the time, we, we didn't know what the future was going to hold, right? We didn't know Kelly Bryant was going to be the quarterback the following year. And it looked like the school did not have a whole lot of faith in what Barry Odom was doing. And there were reasons to believe that that was the case. I think he tried for other guys. And I don't think it was an issue with other guys, at least from my understanding. I think the issue that other guys had with this school, and maybe money could have made it better. Sure, I could I could buy that for sure. I think the issue was they didn't believe that Barry Odom had any sort of future at Mizzou. And I think that that it kind of foretold the future of Barry Odom at Mizzou in a lot of ways. You can cover up that uncertainty with a lot of dollar signs. I'm just saying. That's true. I'm just saying. That's true. Point is, Steve Wilkes is going to make a lot of money. And that's awesome. Um, I don't think he's going to be a long-term hire. I don't think he's going to be a... What, a Matt Eberflus or a Dave Steckel who sticks around for five, six, seven years? That's not going to be the thing. But that's not that's not what the college game is anymore. And like you said, you know, you want him to find success so that he finds a bigger a bigger job. Maybe not a better job, but a bigger job. He becomes a name. Uh, and then you pitch that. So this is this is a good thing. Uh, hopefully he can deliver. Hope he's a great teacher. Hope he's a great recruiter. He certainly has NFL splashed all over him. And if he can't be a good recruiter, you can at least talk about that. <laughs> hey, I know how to get you to the NFL. Like that's pretty good for mom and dad sitting on the couch when you're trying to get kids uh, committed to your school. So uh, pretty good overall. Jethro Franklin is the defensive line coach. He's a Fresno Fresno State grad from '88. He's been a West Coast dude. Uh, for most of his life, but he's also got uh, NFL splashed all over him. Green Bay Packers, Tampa Bay Bucks, Houston Texans, Oakland Raiders, Seattle Seahawks as of the last three years. You know what I know about the NFL. It's nothing. Uh, did you know anything about Jethro Franklin before he was announced as a defensive line coach for Mizzou? I've read some things about the Seahawks' defensive line while he was there. It ain't great. The Raiders didn't have a great pass rush while he was Oakland. Some of this we have to remember. It's a reflection of the talent that he had to work with. The Seahawks' talent along the defensive line when he was there had completely deteriorated from the time when we remember what the Seahawks defense previously was with the Legion of Boom. They were not that anymore once Franklin got there, and he was the assistant defensive line coach there. So keep that in mind. 
With the Raiders, he had almost no talent on the defensive line outside of Khalil Mack. Khalil Mack was awesome, but that's because Khalil Mack is awesome. Um, so, I, man, it is so hard to know. Is he good? Is he bad? I have no idea. He previously worked with Al Golden from 2010 to 2014 um, at Temple in Miami. I just don't know. I don't know. Uh, it, it might be a great hire. It might be a bad hire. It. I have zero analysis on this one, unfortunately. Yeah, at least he's cheap. Four hundred thousand dollars this year, four hundred twenty-five next year. So that's that's manageable. Uh, who knows? But there's a lot of. Talent. I got the feeling. I got the feeling based on um, listening to Eli Drinkwitz. This was kind of a changing the message type of a hire. Hmm. I I think they just wanted to get kind of a, a fresh voice into that room, and I don't know that it was so much about hey, Brick Haley's a bad coach or he wasn't doing a good job. I think it might have been as simple as. Hey, you know, Brick's been here a while. Time to change things up a little bit in that room. Yeah. Get my guy in there. Yeah. We didn't talk about the fact that Brick was fired, right? Yes. Okay, good. I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> I don't listen to the show, so I don't remember. But, yeah, he was definitely fired. And I, I haven't seen if he's landed somewhere else. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's fine. It's fine. You know, again, defensive line, you got a lot of talent coming in. And uh, if you can teach him well, then that's going to be good. It is interesting that of the of his college experience uh, that Jethro Franklin has, it's like USC, yes, Temple, but Miami. <laughs> like, it's kind of some big uh, blue bloods that you're playing with here, and now you're coming to Mizzou. So, I don't know. but And he was out of football last year. Um, so, it, it's it's an interesting hire. I, I don't know. I, I really don't know what to make of it. He, he may be fantastic. And... Maybe this is a recruiting hire, right? We know Could that be. Eli Drinkwitz has has done a lot when it comes to bringing in guys that are really good recruiters, mm-hmm. and we've seen that pay off. Casey Woods, really good recruiter, has a ton of experience there. Charlie Harbison, great recruiter. Uh, David Gibbs seems to be a pretty darn good recruiter. So it, there's a lot of guys on this staff that are, are really – Curtis Looper, I, I should mention as well. Some really good recruiters on this staff, and I, I wonder if maybe that's part of this. Yeah, I'm all good with it. I know def- like defensive line, defensive back, they usually are pretty good recruiters just by personality and obviously exposure to the kids that they play with. So, um, yeah, maybe that's what it is. I'm not going to question it until I, until I disagree with it. How about that? I'm going to give Drinkwitz yeah. the full benefit of the doubt. He's earned it. He has. He certainly has. So the big news yesterday for me, I, it feels like a good chunk of, of college football then as well. The video game's coming back, y'all. Oh, yeah. EA Sports made it official. It was their budgetary meetings yesterday with their board, so this is no surprise. (laughs) They decided they just lost the Star Wars franchise. Like, oh, crap. So they said, hey, we're bringing (laughs) back the college football game. Uh, The the franchise formerly known as NCAA Football is now being rebranded as EA College Football. Uh, If you're looking into why now, I'm certainly not in the room with EA. I'm not going to assume to know what they're what they're doing here. Like I said, it might be kind of a make money kind of statement. But what is in front of Congress right now is the uh, national uh, or the NIL uh, rights for college football players that will be heard in March, actually for all college athletes. Uh, name, image, and likeness, uh, where there's a case coming up, a possible law being passed where college athletes can benefit off of their name, their image, their likeness. Ipso facto, they can endorse things. Also, they can show up in video games and get paid for it. Now, we don't know where that law is going to go. Uh, if you follow politics, you know where the House and the Senate sit right now. I'm sure you have plenty of opinions on what that means for an NIL law being passed. Don't care about that. Don't want to talk about that. What I do want to talk about is that EA is seeing this as a golden opportunity. Hey, we've lost some licenses in other places. We know what the most popular thing we could possibly do is. We can create the game, because from what I understand, it just uses the previous year's Madden engine anyway. You can take that, you can build a game, and all of the, the offensive playbooks, the triple option, the RPOs, you can work with the schools, which they are currently doing. There's a uh, there's a group of schools that will be negotiating their rights, so that's going to be the name, the logo, the stadium, the fight songs, all that stuff, to put into the game. Any schools that are not part of that association, EA will negotiate separately. They can do that right now if they want. I guarantee you they already have been doing that. So they can build it, 
build the stadiums, build the crowds, build the logos, the uniforms, all of that stuff. And then because video games take like two, three, four years to create, they can do the modeling, they can do all of the reactionary stuff from the Madden engine and just wait to figure out what's going to happen with NIL. If it does pass, then probably in 2023, we get to play with Tyler Bacon, Connor Bazelak, Taj Butts in EA College Football 2024. If it doesn't, then we will be playing with quarterback number eight, <laughs> running back number five uh, in EA College Football 2024. Like, it doesn't matter. Um, now, from what I understand is that if NIL doesn't pass, they're not going to do, like, similar rosters. Like, BK, I don't know if you remember this, but, like, you wouldn't have names attached to the team, but, like, everybody kind of looked like the starting quarterback or the starting defensive end, and they yeah. all have the same numbers. Like, they're, they're not even going to get close to that. They're just going to randomize it completely and let the internet figure it out. But the point is, the point is, whether NIL passes or not, the game is going to be out there, and a world with a college football game is much better than a world without a college football game. I'm curious because I know what immediately comes to mind for me. What was the NCAA football game that you spent the most time playing? Like, do you remember what year it was 14. for you or what the... 14. 14, really? I bought every single one starting with 2005, and I would play that hell out of it until the next one came in, and then I would manually, manually, listeners, create all the rosters to my specific accurate specifications and then play the hell out of it until the next one came up. 14 was the I last don't know one. Why that's completely unsurprising. <laughs> 14 was the last one, so I've just been playing the hell out of that. I have taken almost literally every team that is in there to a national championship. Plus I poured it in Coastal Carolina, App State, all the other teams that were not in there when the game launched. I am a monster. Somebody help me. <laughs> my year was 06. 06 was the year. I don't know why. 06 was the one that I played most often. Um, if you remember, that was the one that had, uh, what's his face, Desmond Howard on the cover. Was that the Road to Glory Heisman mode? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it was amazing. You had that dorm room Hell that you, were yes. sitting, you would hang out All in. All your trophies? Um, yes. And you would like you decide, do I want to go to practice? Do I want to go to, pra- yes. uh, to, to class? Yes. How much time are you spending on class? If your GPA got below a certain level, you like had to go to class. Uh-huh. It, it was, a, it, it's the single greatest sports game, in my opinion, um, of the last 20 years. Damn. I, I think it, it for me is probably the one that I spent the most time. Like when, when I say that I should specify, it's not the greatest sports game. No, it is the single greatest piece of a sports game a uh a gameplay style or whatever the road to glory is the single greatest mm-hmm. thing that any g- sports game had of the last 20 years it was incredible in ncaa 06 i'm just pulling up all my spreadsheets that i have of all of my dynasties that i kept meticulous notes on uh, oh my god oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> again None of this is surprising, <laughs> but for some reason, it still comes across as surprising to me. So, I need help. Somebody, some, some adult come help me. Um, here, Let's talk about this, the impact of this kind of big picture, though. Um, yeah. I, there's no law that says that football has to stay popular. And over the past couple, well, really the past decade, you've seen its popularity crumble at the edges. Not, not all at once, just... Little things here and there. CTE is a big one, um, but it's also just exposure to other sports. And one of the big things that you're, I'm starting to realize, and I've seen other people talk about this. I'm not going to take credit on my end, but college football. You know, we, you and I talk about this all the time. You, you as Mizzou fans, you're on Twitter. You're you're on other corners of the internet. You see the passion and the intensity that everybody who follows a sport has. I'll tell you. It's it's a very vocal minority. And college football as a sport, despite the fact that it is a national sport, it is not a national sport in the eyes that matter. And the eyes that matter are advertisers. They do not see it as a national sport. And the reason they don't see it as a national sport is because when you know corporate marketers come in to do their media buys, 
um, they know two things. Number one, they know that this, the, the, the consumer base is not as interested as they used to be like 15 years ago. And number two is that a lot of the demographics that college football likes to target, they're losing them. And that demo is 15 and 25-year-old males. And that 15 to 25 demo is not really paying as much attention to college football anymore. Do you know what they are paying attention to, BK? Basketball? That's a good guess. It's soccer. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And the reason yeah. that they're paying attention to soccer is because of the FIFA video game. Mm. The best way you can learn about a sport is to play the sport. If you suck at athletics like I do, the second best way to learn about a sport is to play the sport on a video game. And the popularity of the FIFA video game, especially online, especially with their ultimate team and the billions of dollars that that brings in, has exposed the 15 to 25 male demographic to a brand new sporting outlet. But here's my question, okay, because it, it's, it's very interesting what you're bringing up here. Are those kids then watching college soccer? I don't think they're watching college soccer, but you don't need to. You can watch like Bundesliga and like all other places sure. that take seventeen-year-old kids. Uh, totally understand. Um, but those games are on at like eight a.m. in the morning on Saturdays. And they watch right? them. <laughs> they do. Yeah. Sure, sure. I'm just saying. I don't think that is directly competing head to head with college football. Does that make sense? I get it. It's like I, yeah. I, I think you can have both. I think it can be where. Soccer can completely gain in popularity. I think the sport that is more at risk with soccer's growth is something like baseball, right? Where baseball is kind of off into the fringe compared to football, basketball, kind of the clear-cut top two sports right now, in my mind at least, uh, among the four major ones. Um, Then you've got baseball and then you've got hockey. Um, Baseball is the one that it is slow. There is less action. Soccer, if there is any gripe about it, is that there is it is slow and there's less action but there is always more action in soccer than there is in any individual baseball game typically so that would be the one that i would think would have more to lose from something like this but th- this is just me kind of spouting off the top I, baseball does not do well with the youth demographic i think we can all admit mm-hmm. to that and like and i'm saying that as someone that loves baseball yeah absolutely there's nothing wrong with the sport i love going to see cardinals games like it's great but like if you're just talking about an interaction with with the youths, it's not there. Basketball has it because it has drama with the fact that it's a player-run league. You can make one trade and you can make the worst team the best team, just like that. You have players that you know they talk crap to each other. Like it's it's characters, it's drama built into the players, and that makes and it interesting. Shoes. What's that? And the shoes. And, and the shoes. The sneakerheads. The whole that's, that. That's something that probably doesn't get brought up enough. But the, the shoes are a significant part the of the culture. It. Is huge. And, mm-hmm. and the thing about soccer is that the, the game is, is what it is, right? Like the, the beautiful game, whatever that means. Like no one scores, but there's like a lot of ball <laughs> movement, right? You know what is really interesting about soccer, though, that I think a lot of people miss? It has recruiting. And if there's one thing that people love more than college football, it's college football recruiting, right? They have their, their talent scouting windows where they can trade and stuff like that, but there's also yeah. recruiting American kids, recruiting Brazilian kids, going into China, going into all sorts of countries and like, oh, can we, you know, can we buy the rights to this kid? Can we bring them on? And following that kid through the process. There's no following a single athlete through a college into the pros. You just follow his professional career. And the video game for FIFA has that and the real-life sport has that and that whole culture of – recruiting and trading is huge and so i'm not yeah you're, you're right look fifa is not going to cannibalize uh college football viewership right they're not one-to-one it's not it's not a plus minus kind of relationship what i am saying is that the interest can be pulled away and if you if you are in washington or oregon or utah and you are a kid who's looking at college football and going, well, my team's never going to make the playoff, but I can follow like this league. I can follow this soccer league, and I love the video game. Like That is yeah. huge. That, that creates buy-in. That, that builds the brand. Having a college football video game builds that brand again. It gives you the opportunity to take Utah to the playoff or Washington or <laughs> Colorado State. Like It gives you that interaction with that brand, with that, with that school. And so it's really important that this game comes back to 
keep that young that younger fan base so that the the passion and the intensity and everything that we think is everywhere continues through the younger generations going forward it's interesting um it, it it's something that has certainly been discussed i think the regionality of it is a bigger threat to college football than, than the video game or than soccer or any other sport in gen- in uh specifically right i I think the fact that it is so dominated right now by Southeast and really specifically South Southern teams, that's the biggest problem facing the sport. Um, Alabama, what is happening is in some ways good, but eventually you're going to have to need to see somebody else rise up, right? Like Alabama just had literally the greatest college football recruiting class that we have ever seen yep. in the history of college football recruiting. Yep. And Oh, by the way, this off season, they added a guy that at Penn State was pretty darn successful as a head coach. He's their new offensive coordinator. A guy that was at Syracuse as their head coach and was relatively successful there, by the way. He's now their offensive line coach, mm-hmm. talking about Doug Marone as the O-line coach and Bill O'Brien as their new OC. Mm-hmm. The staff is incredible. You've got Nick Saban. Nothing else needs to be said there. And they're adding the best talent in America. There is nothing that is going to stop them from continuing to do what they did this year. They had Mac Jones as their starting quarterback, who is perfectly average. <laughs> yep. And he was like third in the Heisman voting and is probably going to end up being a first or a second round pick this year because people care too much about how he looked <laughs> in that specific situation. Yep. yep. It's crazy, man. Yep. And so they they have created a complete factory down there. And it's going to be really hard for teams on the West Coast in particular or in the Northeast to be able to compete with that. If I'm a Big Ten fan, if I'm a Pac-12 fan, basically if I'm a fan of any team other than somebody in the SEC that's playing at that similar level, like a Florida or Georgia, (laughs) or, yeah, Clemson from the ACC, what am I really watching for? It almost becomes anticlimactic because the hope is that maybe my team can get into the Final Four for the right to see their get their ass kicked by either Clemson or Alabama. Mm -hmm. I want to dive into this in the offseason a lot, but basically if you want this sport to succeed long term, you need three things to happen. Number one, you need the, the college football video game to come back. Number two, you need Nick Saban to retire. And number three, <laughs> you need to expand the playoff. And I'll go into deeper yes. detail as we go forward, but you absolutely nailed it. Those three things need to happen because right now, and kind of a 3B, you got to stop talking about the playoff unless you expand it. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it sucks right now, but but that's where we're at, and you just kind of bask in the awe of what Saban can do, and and hope he retires before we all die. That's all. Yeah, well, that seems about as likely as Tom Brady retiring <laughs> right. at this point. Um, and then finally, unfortunately, the shot in Freud of Tennessee's coaching search was not nearly as drawn out as last time, so that made me a little sad. But it was very goofy and silly. When last the the world turned and we were talking about Tennessee, they had just fired Phil or sorry, <clears throat> Phil Fulmer retired as athletic director of Tennessee. And Jimmy Pruitt was fired. He was paid a lot of money to no longer or not going to be paid a lot of money to, to be coaching there. <laughs> so what did Tennessee do? Well, the first thing they did is they had needed to hire an athletic director so they could hire a football coach. They went to Central Florida or God, sorry, UCF, and they plucked Danny White. Danny White's a young AD. He's got a lot of buzz around him. He's a pretty good manager of a, of a, of a uh, school's athletics, and this was all around viewed as a terrific move. Former Mizzou guy. Former Mizzou guy. Danny White uh, was the guy who hired Josh Heupel, our own Josh Heupel, away from Missouri to UCF in 2018, or after the 2017 season. When Danny White hired Josh Heupel, he did not want Josh Heupel out to shoot. Now, this is very common. A lot of times athletic directors go into coaching searches with a list of 1 through 10, and they usually don't get their first four guys. Right? That's just that's normal. Keep in mind, Alabama did not have Saban as their top five guy. <laughs> he was like their fifth or sixth pick. So these sorts of things happen. Heupel ended up being White's like fourth pick, I think, at UCF. And it worked out just fine. He had to follow Scott Frost, who went, uh, who took an 0-12 team, to seven and six, and then undefeated, so that kind of sucks. But you know, Hypel went twenty-eight and eight uh, with the Knights, uh, a couple of big bowl wins, and and that's awesome. 
Well, Danny White takes the Tennessee job, and he wants James Franklin. James Franklin says, thanks, but no thanks. You don't have any players. I don't want to be there. He goes and looks at Billy Napier, like everybody else has. Billy Napier goes, you have no players. I don't want to go there. So he goes with Chris or with Josh Heupel. Now, BK, I don't know about you. I've, I've had a couple jobs in my lifetime. I can say that I've never been hired by the same guy twice at two different jobs, and I certainly <laughs> was never the fourth pick of that guy in both jobs. Kind of an awkward working situation, don't you think? It is until you get that paycheck. That paycheck clears, <laughs> at least as far as I can tell. Uh, sure. I'm pretty sure Josh Heupel got a decent raise, and I think that the check clears at, at, at the end of every month yeah. and uh, every two weeks thereafter. Yeah. So. That ain't so bad, all things considered. And if you keep on winning, which Josh Heupel did a heck of a lot of uh, in 2019 and 2018, you're going to be A-OK because you'll keep that job. Now, that being said, I don't think he's going to do a hell hell of a lot of winning at Tennessee, at least in year one. I think Heupel's actually a pretty good coach. Um, is he great? No. Is his offense coming at the detriment of his defense? Absolutely. <laughs> but I think he's a pretty good offensive mind. I do think that his offense works. It alleviates a lot of pressure from your offensive line. Uh, every Everywhere he's ever been, his sack rates are unbelievably mm-hmm. low. Like his quarterback almost never gets hit because he's getting rid of the ball so quickly. Yep. It's not pro style at all. It does not pr- prepare his quarterback for the NFL. I understand all of that, but I, I think he's going to be okay there. I don't think that this is going to end in abject disaster. That being said, it doesn't have to end in disaster for that fan base to create (laughs) what is an uproar to get him fired. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's the way this goes, because that's the way it always goes at Alabama. Basically, if you're not Phil Fulmer, then you're going to be fired in miraculous fashion (laughs) at, at, at Tennessee. So I yeah I don't know what to say about it because I don't I don't think it's going to end well but I do think Josh Heupel's a better coach than some people are making it out to be. His offense can make make that a good hire. You're absolutely right. Uh, he he can he can bring in the first good offense since I don't really frankly Dooley's offense in 2012. So mm-hmm. absolutely, it it's not. I don't if you want to find reasons it's not going to work. Let me put it that way. Reasons it's not going to work. Number one, he's got no players. But, you know, the scheme can cover for that, okay? I understand that. Especially his. His can make up for a lack of Exactly. Power. Number two, when he came into the SEC at Missouri, he was running something that most teams were not running, which was throw it first, throw it second, just go as fast as freaking human possible. That is not really how offenses work, and a lot of defenses are kind of keyed in on that at this point. The closest you're going to get is like a Lane Kiffin. He doesn't go mock speed. Like, like the, the the difference is that offenses now sprint to the to the line. Like they line up really quick, but then they take their time to kind of pick out their play. Heupel runs fast to the line and then calls a play. Like UCF has been the fastest team for like the past three years, and it's not even close. Teams have seen that. Defenses have seen that. They've keyed in on that. So. I'm not sure if he does that, he's going to find the same success that he found at Missouri. Uh, he's a smart football guy. Obviously, he he knows how to adapt, or he should know how to adapt. So maybe he does. He doesn't do that, but yeah, his offense is regardless. Leave the defense out to dry. So who's his defensive coordinator going to be? I don't know. That's going to be tough sell. Um, maybe he takes Coach Gibbs. I don't know. Bring the turnovers to Tennessee. Uh, but I I think it's going to be a rough go for him. And that's fine because Tennessee tears make me happy, but I I don't think this is going to be a quick fix. I think it's going to be a long build, which I'm not totally sure if Knoxville is ever in the mood for a long-term build. Well, they're not. We we know the answer to that question. They're not. Um, I And it's, it's a tough time to do that in the SEC, right? Because you've got Florida and Georgia who are both operating at a high level right mm-hmm. now. Kentucky is pretty darn solid, and as we said last year, they will take that mirror right up to your face yep. and show you a reflection of exactly what you are. And I think South Carolina is going to be a little bit better here in the next few years. And we, I mean, I don't have to tell Mizzou fans, Mizzou's on the upward trajectory. Mm-hmm. I think it's very possible that Tennessee kind of stays where they are for the time being, you know, and is that kind of fifth best program right now in the East? it's crazy to say but that's where they were last year and would it surprise you if that's where they are for the next couple of years no no and and i i'm not totally sure what the tennessee administration feels about this because 
They hired Danny White to make a home run hire. And Danny White drunk dialed his ex. <laughs> so I don't know. I really don't know what what's going to happen here. I think he's going to probably have a short leash, both White and and Heupel. Maybe he gets a couple upsets. Maybe maybe he does really well. I don't know. But just optics, without seeing anything, just knowing what we know from the past, this doesn't seem like that great of a fit. This doesn't seem like that great of a hire. And, yeah, I think Tennessee will probably be you know, somewhere fifth or sixth in the SEC. So their schedule might help them. Their schedule might help them. Uh, they've got Bowling Green, Pitt, Tennessee, Chattanooga, Tennessee Tech. Yeah. Pitt's um, going to beat that ass, by the way. <laughs> That's totally going to happen. South Alabama, Vandy. They've got some games they can win next year. They could go pretty close to 500. I mean, I I know that's not something that Van or that Tennessee fans are going to be thrilled about, but they, they could be okay. By the way, I forgot since we talked last, the schedule was officially announced for Mizzou. Oh yeah. Yeah. That schedule. Do you want to do our first run through? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know we got to get out of here. I know we're going long right now. Do you have have it up in front of you? Because I do not. I do. So let's go week by week real quick. Central Michigan. I'm going to write that down in pen as a win. That's going to be a win. Yes. Uh, Kentucky on the road at Kentucky. Tough, 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 but you should win that one. I agree. 2-0. SEMO. You got to win that one. Sweep it. 3-0 at Boston College. It's going to be tough. That Boston College's offense is really, really good. They throw it around. Guess what we're not very good at? Stopping the pass. That is a trap game if I've ever seen one. Stop scheduling stupid games on the road. Seriously. Dumb game. 4-0. They're going 4-0 to start. (laughs) Uh, Tennessee at home. Well, you should probably beat them in the first year. So let's, yeah, let's put that down. Especially at home. 5-0. North Texas at home. Hate that game as well. Seth Luttrell is on the downward spiral here. I Once his quarterback left from a couple of years ago, he has not found that magic. I, I'm not totally sure what he's got coming in. I would have been way more afraid of this game when it was originally scheduled, and I think I was, but I feel a lot more bullish about this in 2021. 6-0, baby. <laughs> nice start, Eli Drinkwitz. All right. Oh, my God. Texas what are we A&M. doing? Texas A&M. No, no. I, I know Kellen <laughs> no. Mond is. I know Kellen Mond is gone, but Texas A&M is one of the fifteen blue chip ratio teams where over fifty percent of their roster are blue chip, four star, five star kids. Uh, that is a quality team, regardless of quarterback. Uh, we have never played Jimbo Fisher, but I'm going to just put that one down as an L, especially because I can't sit here and say we start seven and though. I can't tell you that Kellen Mond was even a good quarterback, so we're going to go 6-1. and one. I don't know that it's totally a huge yeah. downgrade for them next year. Yeah. Uh, at Vandy, gotta, can we go ahead and win? It. win? Yeah. At Georgia, That's a loss. lost 7-2. and two. Um, South Carolina at home. Wow, so you that, – okay, that's our only back, back-to-back road trip. So you got to buy, then a buy, then at Vandy, at Georgia. That's actually mm-hmm. super manageable. Okay. Yep. Uh, you said South Carolina. Yeah, you gotta you gotta beat Beamer Jr. in his first year, and they just had a terrible recruiting class. I'm not sure who their quarterback's going to be, so that that's got to be a win. So we've got eight and two Holy going crap. into the final two weeks of the Holy season. Crap. Florida, we can, we're same page, Loss. eight and three, yeah. and then at at Arkansas. Loss. Come on, loss. No. Yeah. Nate. Yeah. <laughs> Nate. Give me a nine and three. Give me a nine and three. Give me a nine and three. Give me a Fine. nine, nine, me a nine and three. three we, we beat him again. That's what I'm talking about. Oh. We did it. <laughs> we did it, ladies and oh gentlemen. Oh, my God. We're going nine and three in 2020. What? Oh, my God. <laughs> that can't the be schedule, right. <laughs> so the reason why I wanted to do that was because the schedule sets up really, really, really it well does. for Mizzou to be good next it year. It does. I mean – is this a nine and three talent team? No, no, it's not. Not in the SEC. Does the schedule set up for them to potentially do that though? Absolutely. Outside of Texas A and M, Georgia, and Florida, every other game is winnable on the schedule. Mm-hmm. Every single one of them. Mm-hmm. Oh man, <laughs> that's assuming this goes as planned. I, I mean, I don't know if the SEC is going to do another all SEC schedule or not. I don't know where we're going to be COVID-wise. I like to think we'd be mostly through it, so I'm assuming this is going to be It's going to be fine, schedule. especially by December because I'm getting married, so we need this go. bad boy to get back on track. Come on, world. BK needs to get married with no hits. <laughs> that's right. Okay. All right. Well, that's 
That's exciting. We will dive way, way deeper into this as we go through the offseason because we're going to have plenty of time to do it. Uh, any last parting shots for the listeners, BK? I'm really, really proud of you for having Mizzou going 9-3 and three next <sighs> Don't year. Don't tell anybody. I'm really proud of you. Don't tell anybody. I'm really proud. Right, right. There's, there's not, you know, 1,500 people that listen to this, right? So no one's going to know. No, it'll be fine. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> that's the show for today. As always, we appreciate the downloads and the subscriptions. You can leave a comment or you can rate us. We love all types of feedback. You can follow us on Twitter. I am at Nate G. Edwards. He is at BK Sports Talk. You can listen to him at 101 ESPN, 10 in the morning until 2 in the afternoon. Uh, and you can follow the Rockin' Flagship at Rockin' Nation. We appreciate you tuning in this time. We'll try to do better next time. And until then, I'm Z. Z-O-U.